Man, this place is falling apart. Wait a minute, 99. That gives me an idea. I know nothing. Nothing. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're talking about things that we've forgotten or things that we never knew. Long forgotten knowledge. Okay, it's actually stuff that I've figured out or looked up over the years, but I figured I'd share it with you because I'm that kind of a nerd. Some of the stuff is stuff that I grew up with. Some of the stuff is stuff that you've grown up with. All of it is stuff that made me think. Because I, I, I look at things and I go, well, why is that the way it is? I like to know why things work or what things are or where they came from. That's just me. I'm a nosy SOB, what can I tell you? But since I've been around for a while and I've taken the time to look some of this stuff up, figured I'd share that information with you. Now, some of this stuff pertains to things that you may not have even seen. Some of it pertains to stuff you probably didn't think about. Because my job is to think of the weird stuff. Find the weird stuff. Share that weird information with you. So that's what we're doing today. We're going over some weird information and remembering some long-forgotten things. One of the things that prompted today's episode is the glove compartment. You know what I'm talking about, that little thing in the dashboard of your car. Some call it the glove box. I always grew up with it as the glove compartment. And I mean, the name is pretty self-explanatory. It's the compartment where you put your gloves. Well, why is it called the glove compartment, aside from the fact that you put your gloves there? I mean, why would you need gloves while you're driving? Okay, maybe they make a nice fashion statement. Oh, look at my lovely driving gloves. But actually, you have to remember when they first built cars, a lot of cars back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were open-air vehicles. They didn't have windows. They didn't have doors in some cases. So if you're driving along on a cool fall evening or a cold winter's night, your hands are going to get cold. And so you'd need gloves. But suppose you started driving in the middle of the day when it was sunny out and you didn't need the gloves. You would put your gloves in the glove compartment. So you always had a pair. So in the early 1900s, the Packard Car Company put in the first glove box. And now you had a place to keep your gloves for those cold winter nights. That's why it exists. And now we have a place for our registration, the owner's manual, 74 napkins, and six old ketchup packets from McDonald's. Now here's another weird little thing that I bet you don't know why it exists. Now not all jeans have these. But if you get a pair of Levi's, a pair of Lee, a pair of Wrangler, you know, the old school jeans, on the right side where you have the slash pocket, there's always that little extra pocket. And I know a lot of people think that's for loose change. Some call it the condom pocket. Back in the day, some people would keep an extra book of matches in there when smoking was a big deal. But do you know what that pocket was originally designed for? A pocket watch. Back in the day when they first invented blue jeans, people didn't have wrist watches, they had pocket watches. And if you watch some of those old movies, you'll see the guy with the pocket watch in his vest and the chain across the middle of his belly. Everybody who had a watch had a pocket watch. Well, when the guys were working and they wanted to bring their watch with them, Levi Strauss invented the pocket watch pocket. So you'd slide that into the little pocket right above the main pocket and it would give added protection to your beloved pocket watch. That's what it's there for. And as long as we're talking about jeans, how about the carpenter jeans? They were really big in the 80s, the 90s. They were a definite fashion statement. And you can still find carpenter jeans out there. They're called carpenter jeans for a reason. And I'm sure you know the ones I'm talking about. The ones with regular pockets, but they were a little baggier. They had a side pocket down the leg, which was for a ruler, in case you didn't know. And they also had that loop on the left side. There was that extra loop of denim. 
You know what that loop was for? Holding your hammer. The next time you try on your pair of old carpenter jeans or your new ones, go grab a hammer. You'll find that the handle fits perfectly in that loop and the hammer hangs right on the loop just the way it was supposed to. All you had to do is slip your hammer in the loop, climb the ladder, have the nails in your pocket, or hold on your mouth so that you just pull them out. Yes, I held nails in my mouth. I know, you're not supposed to, but I did. But anyway, you would have your hammer ready at your side. All you had to do was pull it out of that loop, and boom, you're ready to go. That's what the loop is for on your carpenter jeans. As long as we're talking about clothes, if you have any of those dress shirts with a little loop on the back, it's put there so you have a way to hang your shirt in a locker. It's called the locker loop. It's so when you take your shirt off and you're changing clothes in a locker room, you have a place to hang it so it doesn't get wrinkled. That's so you don't wad it up and put it on the floor or drop it on the floor. You can hang it up, keep it nice and neat while you change. See, there's a lot of little known things out there. Yes, the way my mind works, I need to know these things. So I've done the research so you don't have to. Now, one of the weird ones I found, it's the holes in your pen cap. In case you've never noticed, if you have one of the old ballpoint pens like the Bic pens with a little plastic cap that pulls off, but pretty much any other pen that you have, if you look closely or if you're like me, you decide to see if you can whistle with it, if you bring it up to your mouth and you blow in it, you'll see that air goes through it. It blows right through. So why do they put holes in pen caps? Well, here's the reason you have holes in your pen cap. This is one of those kind of dark statistics. But reportedly, 100 people a year in the United States, choke to death on pen caps. And one of the reasons that happens is it blocks their airflow. So in order to minimize these deaths, scientists developed a way to create the pen cap with the appropriate kind of holes in it. So if you happen to be chewing on your pen cap and you go, and it gets stuck in your throat, you have a better chance of not choking yourself to death thanks to these little holes. That's a cheery thought, isn't it? But you know what? As a guy who chews his pens and pencils, I get it. I totally get it. I've chewed on pen caps all of my life. You can always tell my pen. I know it's gross. As long as we're talking about desktops and office things, how about your keyboard? Your computer keyboard, your laptop keyboard. Go ahead and look at it right now. Or if you can, if you're driving, look at it when you get home. If you look at the F and J keys, you're going to find a little dot or a little ridge or something raised on those keys. Just the F and just the J. Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, in case you didn't know, for those of us who took typing classes in college, the F and the J keys are the home position keys. When you take a typing class, you put your hands in the home position. That means the index finger on the left hand goes on the F, and the index finger on the right hand goes on the J. And all the other fingers go on the keys next to them, of course. That's your home position. That's where you start whenever you're typing. And then everything you learn about typing starts from that home position. Now, of course, they use the same keyboard for computers that they used in typing classes, but a lot of times we're focused more on the screen than anything else when we're typing on the computer. It's not quite the same as a typewriter because you look down at the typewriter more, you're changing paper, you're doing all different kinds of things that you used to do with a typewriter that you don't do with a computer keyboard. So when you're focused on your typing on a computer, you never have to look at the keyboard to find your home position. So if you look away from your keyboard the next time you're sitting at it, just feel around with your fingers. Don't even look at it. When you find the F and J, you'll know you're at the home position. Now, of course, this only matters if you actually use typing skills. I'm a typist. I learned to type in college. One of the reasons being my dad told me, well, if nothing else, if you can type, you'll always be able to eat. Because back in the day, people were always looking for somebody to type. You need your term papers typed. 
You needed your thesis typed. You needed your reports typed. So people were always looking for other people to type, and you used to be able to charge people per page whatever they needed typed. So I learned to type. And quite honestly, my dad was right. There was a period of time where I was typing as a temp in order to pay my bills. But before we go off on that tangent, the point is the keyboard markers on F and J come back from typing classes that date back to when they first invented the QWERTY keyboard. F and J is the home position. That's where they put the keyboard markers. There's also some things from the kitchen that you probably didn't know about. How about the hole in your pot handle? You're boiling water. You're stirring sauce in a saucepan. You look at your pot. You see there's a hole in the handle. Now, a lot of people use that hole and hang that pot or hang that pan on the rack that's hanging above the butcher block in the middle of your kitchen, where you put nails in the wall and you hang your pots there. That's what my dad did. But actually, the hole in the pot handle is supposed to be used to hold a spoon or a spatula or anything else with a little handle. You just pop it in the hole there, and it keeps you from laying the spoon down on the counter or on the stovetop. Now, in practice, maybe I've been doing it wrong. But some of the stuff does slide down the handle of the spoon or the spatula. So while it has a function, I'm not sure I like the function, but that's what it's designed for. It's not just a hook. It's supposed to serve a purpose. Another purpose that's supposed to be served by the implement, but I'm not sure that it does, is that spaghetti spoon. You know the spaghetti spoon with the points on it and the hole in it so that when you are pulling the spaghetti out of the strainer or out of the colander, you pull it up and you separate the strands of spaghetti? Well, the hole in that spaghetti spoon is supposed to serve a purpose too. And that purpose is this. If you take a handful of the uncooked spaghetti, the amount that fits through that hole is supposed to equal one serving. That's the theory behind that hole. It's not just for drainage. It's actually there so you can measure the spaghetti. So when you open the box of spaghetti, you take a small handful, whatever fits through the hole, that's supposed to serve one. Now, I said I'm not sure how well that serves its purpose. I say that because they've never seen me eat spaghetti. I like a lot of spaghetti. As a general rule, those recommended serving sizes, they're generally just guidelines for me. That goes with pretty much everything. Like one serving of potato chips, one ounce. Really? That's like four chips. You really want me to eat four chips for a recommended serving? It's the same with spaghetti. One serving equals, what is that, like 16 strands? I'm sure one of the reasons that this is a forgotten use of the spaghetti spoon is because nobody actually eats that little spaghetti. But that's what it's there for. There's another thing in your kitchen that you've probably been misusing all these years. It's that drawer under the oven. Now, if you're like me, you keep the broiler pan there, some cookie sheets, maybe the cupcake tin, maybe the pancake griddle. depends on what you've got in your kitchen. Nobody has enough space for all of that. So you use that drawer in the bottom of your oven, right? It's storage, right? No, it's not. In most cases, that drawer is actually supposed to be a warming drawer so that when your food is done, you pull that drawer out. You put your cooked food in there so that it stays warm while the rest of the stuff is finishing up. If you haven't timed things out correctly, you might need to keep that spaghetti sauce warm or that casserole warm or whatever. That's what that drawer is supposed to be for. I have never in my life actually used it for that, but that's what it's for. Here's another one. You know those Chinese takeout boxes? Super convenient to bring your Chinese food home with you, but those boxes actually have a dual purpose. If you open it all the way up, That means unfold it all the way, and you might have to take the handle out to do this. But if you open it up all the way, it's supposed to be a plate so that you don't have to dirty plates at the house. You just unfold the thing all the way, and it flattens out, and now you just put it on the table that way, and everybody can scoop in and grab the fried rice or the egg foo young or whatever you ordered. That's what it's supposed to do. I've never done that in my life. But that was the dual purpose behind the design. Because when you do open it up, 
It's one giant piece of waxed cardboard, and it has kind of a plate look to it, so it works that way. In all my life, I've never used it that way, but you could. Now, I've got some other forgotten things, not so much unknown things, but things that used to exist that don't anymore, that are like vague, vague memories for a lot of people. Like, everybody knew about these things. It's just they've been gone so long that nobody remembers what they are or what they were. Like, for instance, there's a couple of products that were everywhere. And I mean everywhere. They were advertised all over the place. They were in every store. You could find them any place you wanted to. But if I mention them to you now, if you ever heard of them before, you'll have to sit and think, oh, yeah, I remember those. But when's the last time I saw this? For instance, Legs Pantyhose. Now, I didn't go shopping for Legs Pantyhose, but Legs Pantyhose were everywhere. And the reason they were everywhere is because of this massive advertising campaign and the unique product design. You know the plastic eggs that they have at Easter time? Well, the Legs Pantyhose came in a giant-sized version of these, and they had display cases in the supermarkets with stacks and stacks of Legs Pantyhose in them, stacked up like cartons of eggs. And I remember going to the store for my mother. All right, get me a set of nude and a set of tan. All right, Mom, what size am I getting again? You want to get me the medium? All right, Mom, I'll get them. And I remember going to the store to pick up Legs Pantyhose for my mother. That was her thing. She loved the Legs Pantyhose. I haven't seen Legs Pantyhose in forever. And it was only because I decided to put this episode together that I even thought of Legs Pantyhose. They were everywhere and then gone. Another product that disappeared, High Karate Aftershave. This is for the men. High Karate, be careful how you use it. It was an aftershave that was supposed to attract women like flies to honey. And they told you to be careful how you used it because you would be fighting off the women. And that's how the commercials would run. You'd have some guy fighting the women off of him, like that would happen. But High Karate Aftershave was a huge product, year after year after year. And I remember getting my dad High Karate Aftershave for Christmas, at least two or three times. And I know that I did, because after he passed and I was cleaning out his medicine cabinet, there was a bottle of High Karate. I should have saved it, but I didn't. I was afraid after all those years, it might actually eat the skin off my face if I tried it. But it still had quite the aroma. It was kind of a very strong lime cleaner type scent as opposed to an aftershave scent. I'm not sure I would have been fighting any women off if I'd used it. And maybe that's why my dad still had a whole bottle of it in the medicine cabinet. Now, here's another thing that doesn't really exist anymore, but this was a huge, huge thing. It wasn't really a product as much as it was a service. And people of a certain age are going to remember the Columbia House record or tape or eight track club. Oh, Columbia House was huge. Columbia House had ads in every magazine, and they had mailers to your mailbox at least once a week, advertising this incredible membership in the Columbia House Record Club, or Cassette Club, or 8-Track Club. Depending on how old you are, you'll remember one or all of those clubs. They don't exist anymore because we don't have records or cassettes or 8-Tracks. But back in the day, oh, this is how they sold records. The deal was this. Buy 13 records for a dollar. Well, what teenage kid does not want that deal? 13 records for a buck? Ooh, where do I sign up? Then you had to read the fine print. 13 records for a dollar. Then all you have to do is buy six more at regular club prices. Oh, wait. I don't just get 13 for a buck? What are these regular club prices? Well, it turns out those regular prices were about $9.98 a record, which, back in the day, was pretty expensive. 
me being my father's son, I would always go to the Two Guys or the James Way or the Kmart and go to their record rack where you could get records for $5.99. The expensive ones were $7.99. I would never pay bust-out retail for a record. Columbia House wanted me to spend more than bust-out retail. But then, me being the crazy person that I am, I calculated it. So wait a minute. If I get 13 for a dollar, and then I have to buy six more for $9.99 each, so that's 60 bucks. So then that's 19 records for 60 bucks. Well, that's not horrible. That's, that's only a little more than three bucks a record. That's not a bad deal. Yeah, I guess it's not a bad deal in the long run. And I did sign up for Columbia House at one point. I actually signed up for the cassettes rather than the records. Because by the time I could afford to do something like that, I had a driver's license and a cassette deck in my car. So I did sign up for it. And it's not a horrible deal, except when you get their catalog every month because you have to pick from the catalog. All of the stuff at regular club prices is stuff that I wouldn't want to buy. I would have to wait two or three months before there was something that I was even slightly interested in at regular club prices. Oh, they had all kinds of specials, $5.99, $6.99, but they didn't count towards your membership. And oh, by the way, you had to buy those six things within two years. Might have been three, now that I think about it, as I sit here. It could have been three years. But still, when they're sending you crappy selections every month, and you have to pick one, and you can't find anything, you find yourself buying Gap Mangione's greatest hits. Gap Mangione is Chuck Mangione's brother. Neither of those names probably means anything to you, but Chuck Mangione was the popular one. So yeah, I took advantage of the Columbia House Cassette Club once, and that was enough. Another thing that people have forgotten about that was everywhere, and everybody knew what they were for, S&H Green Stamps. Every once in a while as you're driving along somewhere in an old southern town, you might find a sign hanging from the local IGA that says S&H Green Stamps available here. Well, S&H Green Stamps was a promotional thing that a company called Sperry & Hutchinson, S&H, started back in the early 1900s. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, what they did is they would have these green stamps, and they were stamps, the old kind of stamp where you had to lick them to stick them to something. They would have these stamps distributed by retailers, usually grocery stores, sometimes gas stations, and you would get green stamps for purchasing a certain amount of money's worth of product, whether it was gas or groceries or clothing or whatever it was. And when you checked out, you would get your receipt, and then if you met the dollar amount, it would print out a strip of green stamps. Each of the green stamps was worth a certain amount of points, and you would stick those stamps in the S&H green stamp stamp saver. It was a little booklet that the company put out, gave you for free, and you would stick your stamps, you'd lick it and put it in the page. And when you filled up the book, the book would be worth a certain number of points. Now, what good was that? Well, S&H had a catalog, and you could redeem your books of green stamps for prizes. I mean, I always thought of them as prizes. It was just a catalog, and they were trying to sell you stuff. Like if the book was worth a 1,000 points, you might need a 100 books to get a new buffet for your dining room. I mean, I don't remember any of this because I was just a little kid when S&H green stamps were just fading. But I remember one of my jobs as a little kid was to lick those stamps and put them in the book. I have no recollection whatsoever about what my mom collected with these green stamps or what she won or what she traded these books in for. I just remember we had them and I had to stick them in the book. What became of them after that, I have no recollection. But it was a way to get you to go to certain stores so you could collect your green stamps. 
Now, I don't know what the connection was between Sperry and Hutchinson and any of the retailers. I don't know how they made their money. I'm sure there was some kind of financial arrangement. What it is, I don't know. But on the consumer end, it was cool to get the green stamps. And as a kid, getting to lick the stamps and put them in the book, that was cool. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it didn't take much to amuse me as a kid. Oh, I can put the stamps in the book? Yay! Yeah, give me some green stamps, a book to put them in. I was a happy camper. That's just a few of the things that I've remembered that I've forgotten over the years. As you might expect, putting this episode together, I came up with a whole bunch. So you can bet we're coming back to this topic. But I don't want to overload you. You've had enough for now. But we'll come back to this, promise. Anyway, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of things. As always, I can't thank you enough for all your support. You guys are the best, and I really appreciate all of the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.